The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Space Bees edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. If you are a Slate Plus listener, you will remember from last week we had a discussion of Space Bees as they pertained to Anna, what was it? Adam Smith and Capitalism. Adam Smith and Capitalism. <laughs> so this week we have a special guest, Mr. Tim Fernholtz. Hi, Tim. Hello. Tim Fernholtz is here to talk to us about Space Bees as they pertain to Capitalism once again. Capitalism once again. Somehow, Space Bees are a running theme. Who knew that Space Bees were going to be a running theme on Slate Money? But Space Bees are a running theme on Slate Money. Welcome, Tim. Um, You are not only a writer for Quartz. You are also a published author. It still feels weird to hear someone say that. (laughs) Um, So we are going to talk about your book. Uh, We are also, of course, going to talk about this whole... Facebook and Cambridge Analytica mishigas because much as we have talked about these things in the past, I feel like this week is the week to revisit for obvious reasons. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you should probably like turn on the television or read the news or something because you have clearly been living under a rock for the past week. Um, we are also going to talk about Wealthfront, which is a robo-advisor which made some interesting changes last month and... I feel I need to get I need to get a couple things off my chest. So <laughs> that's going to come later. But first, let's talk the final frontier. Tim, tell yes. tell me about your book. My book uh, it's called Rocket Billionaires: Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the New Space Race. So I feel like this is this is where I'm glad I got the title <laughs> in before Felix started. No, no, this is where this is where the the, the little rule about nonfiction books that they all need subtitles. Is is just I'm I'm not gonna. Do you think I could have put it out there with just Rocket Billionaires? Rocket billionaires. I think Rocket Billionaires is an awesome name for a book, and then like some long thing with a subtitle, just like it makes it sound like I, don't I will know. inform my publishers. Rocket Billionaires, just call edition. it Rocket Billionaires. I'm telling you for the for the paperback, just call it Rocket Billionaires. We don't need a long subtitle. Noted. Okay, Rocket Billionaires, which is an awesome title because it combines two things we love, which is rockets and billionaires. Um, I mean that that's like the awesome way of looking at it. The really nerdy slate money way of looking at it is it's all about public private partnerships absolutely and so this is the you you are going to um tell me all about your book and we're going to discuss crazy things about space bees we are going to get there we will but before we do that you're going to explain how space used to be a public sector thing, and now it seems with Elon Musk to be a private sector thing, but really it's maybe not as private sector as it looks? Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. I think it's definitely at a weird transition point where it's cool because a lot of you know different outcomes could happen right now. Uh, I guess the short story is that everybody remembers the moon program, Apollo, 1970s. Even people who weren't born yet remember It's like it. a weird it, cultural yeah. artifact, and it's totally absurd. It's never going to happen again. But uh, up until very recently, space was the province only of governments because you needed a huge amount of money to get there. And you needed uh, sort of 
a reason to go that wasn't making money. And, you know, humans don't end up really doing a lot of things. The Apollo program wasn't hugely profitable? No, it was uh, arguably very geopolitically valuable uh, and scientifically important, but it was a loss, um, I would say, overall economically. Because it wasn't intended to be profitable. No, of course not. Uh, I, and that's, we, we, that we didn't planned. wind up trading with the moon people. Unfortunately, didn't work out so well. And ironically, just because of the way the missions were planned, we didn't even find out some of the most salient facts about the moon. Like there's water there, which is something that has the current space companies all hype. Uh, So we stepped on it. (laughs) We stepped on it. We left the flag. There's very cool footage of moon buggies going around. Uh, It was really important, but it was mostly about geopolitics. And after Apollo, when the government was deciding what should we do next, and a lot of people were like, let's go to Mars. uh, Richard Nixon was like, let's not spend money on that right now. And that was when uh, sort of there was an inflection point in the space program. Uh, and for a while, it just went on sort of as a self-justifying exercise. Um, we had, uh, you know, the space shuttle was created to do everything for everyone, for the military, for NASA, for private sector. But the Challenger disaster changed that, suddenly became very restricted. Then the next 15 years were about making the International Space Station. Uh, and then now we have that. But ultimately, we didn't really get anywhere. But two things happened. One was... Uh, technology improved a lot. Uh, things became smaller and cheaper. And we had an internet revolution where networks and communication became really valuable and also put lots of money into the hands of people who thought space was cool. And specifically into the hands of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Um, specifically because they are the two who have actually made this work and accomplished things. But the other side of this is that history is littered with billionaires who started space companies and failed. And it doesn't it seem like now a lot of these rocket billionaires are trying to make the argument that this time is a little bit different. And it's kind of like with the Internet, where the government laid the groundwork. And then once it got to a certain place, then that was where private industry, private enterprise could come and really like make money off of it. That is absolutely the pitch. Um, but but uh, if we look at the revenue which has gone to, say, SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, or... Jeff Bezos's company, which is Blue Origin, like how much of that comes from the private sector and how much of that comes from governments in one way or another? So it's two very different stories. Um, SpaceX was designed to sort of bootstrap itself and earn money because Elon Musk is not as rich as Jeff Bezos. Um, so I would say I'll probably I don't have the numbers in front of me. I should have thought of this. It's about half and half. In the very early days, it was almost all NASA contracts. NASA paid SpaceX and really got them off the ground. But now, because NASA helped them develop their rocket, they are dominating the commercial launch market and making a lot of money from private companies, too, and sort of putting existing rocket companies out of business or in a lot of trouble. And isn't this also a potential good thing for the market in general for these smaller players to come in? Because I know in your book, you kind of described this old marketplace where Boeing and Lockheed Martin just didn't have any incentive to innovate, didn't have any incentive to do much of anything because they got paid regardless. Absolutely. And that was sort of a gift to Elon Musk when he came in. It was it was hard, but it was not that hard to offer a cheaper competing uh, product. But what was difficult was convincing the government to buy it. And he ultimately had to sue the Air Force to let him just bid on the contracts in the first place. And before we move on to, to the like heart of the book, I just need to do my little Brit thing here and say... Please, get it going. What happened to Richard Branson? 
He's doing great. Um, his company, Virgin Galactic, uh, still exists. They are going to try and fly uh, a person or two people probably in their spacecraft this year. Um, but they've had a lot of trouble. They've been trying for 14 years to build a space plane that can take tourists up into space. Uh, Richard Branson predicts that it will be ready to go about every three months. Um, <laughs> for the past 10 years. Yeah. And so there are engineers who say that it has some, you know, the fundamental design is, is flawed or very challenging to get off the ground. He's been able to raise a lot of money, he says, from uh, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, which has kept the whole thing going. Uh, He's got a really incredible team of people there. We'll see what happens. But the problem is, is that Jeff Bezos has unlimited money and a much bigger team and his rocket, the New Shepard, could eat their lunch. But if we have Richard Branson and Mohammed bin Salman teaming together. <laughs> Essentially, yes. I mean, Richard I Branson mean, Richard, is going to open a spaceport in Saudi Arabia. So he's in says. <laughs> and and what and what's more like. And that's the non-corrupt Saudi. Mohammed bin bin Salman, I can think, I'm sure has a whole list of people he would love to send into space. Yes. Uh, So, Tim, what for you is like the the main message of this book? What's the heart of the book? Oh, God. (laughs) Please read all 90,000 words of it. The heart of the book is that there is uh, a revolution in space technology that's happening right now. It's led by private companies, and it is going to give individuals and private companies the opportunities to do stuff in space that has never before been possible and maybe even is kind of frightening. Um, And and when you say space, do you basically mean in Earth orbit, or does that include things like going to Mars? So the only way we know how to make money in space right now really is in Earth orbit and with satellites either sending signals to Earth or taking pictures of Earth at its most reductive. But... All of these companies and even like the stodgy companies like the Boeing Lockheed Martin joint venture are trying to come up with a way to go to the moon. That's the next thing for these private companies. And Donald Trump wants to do it, too. Done that already. We have done that already. But now we're doing it with capitalism. (laughs) Won't it be better? So what's so what? Yeah. What's the capitalistic reason to go to the moon? So the reason to go to the moon is basically this, that you can get water there. Because we don't have any here. (laughs) Well, it turns out water is very valuable if you're in space, but very difficult to get there. You can make all the things you need to live plus rocket fuel from water. So if NASA wants to go to Mars, which hypothetically it has said that we would do, uh, you're probably going to want to make as much propellant in space as possible to go there. And so the business model, according to a bunch of these very far-reaching space engineers, works out. And what's more, uh, you know, Japan just announced they're putting a billion dollars into startups that are going into space. Um, Blue Origin is doing it. The NASA is now investing hundreds of millions of dollars in private companies going to space. The European Space Agency is behind it. There is money going into this idea that once you can make it cheap enough to go there, you can do things like make fiber optic wires in space. They're much more efficient if you make them in zero G and sell them back on Earth. You could take incredibly wealthy people there. I mean, ultimately, a big part of Jeff Bezos' pitch is space tourism. The, the same as Virgin Galactic. Yes, but his rocket works would be the <laughs> the critical difference. And, and, and also, I mean... We but all remember the, the point that yeah. I think is important is that, as you're kind of hinting, this is all highly speculative. This is extremely but risky. The, but the video of the Falcon boosters coming back down and landing perfectly, that was awesome. And that's why you should take it kind of seriously. And maybe that's the message of my book is that, like, this sounds very kooky, but they are building the tools you need to do this stuff. So what could be the potential downsides? So... 
There are a bunch of them. Um, one is there's not a great regime for legal activity in space. There's an international treaty and international law is full of gray areas and not that enforceable. So this is like space is a bit like Antarctica, basically. Except, yeah, yeah, sure. Except there's probably people think you can make money in space. And I don't think they figured <laughs> that out about Antarctica yet. Um, but if it turns out the space is valuable and it is valuable from like a strategic geopolitical point of view, um, you know, there could be a kind of colonial style land grab thing, except with space resources. Uh, one of the reasons the U.S. is interested in going to the moon is that China is interested in going to the moon. Um, so you might get some of those Cold War dynamics again, where we go there just for political reasons. And the most valuable space resource is space in geosynchronous orbit, right? That's already pretty kind of full up. For now, so the the real thing that will make people money in this in the near term, probably, are huge constellations of low-flying satellites. Richard Branson is doing this uh, with a company called OneWeb. He's on their board. They want to fly 3,000 satellites in space to send internet down right I'm, now. I'm old enough to remember Iridium, which, ah. which did this at great cost and went bankrupt. They did, but they still exist. They're a going concern today. Uh, but yes, in the and 90s. And how is this better than what we currently have? Like, why, why is this profitable? So we currently have satellite internet, but it's really expensive. And so people, and it's also very slow. Because it's these satellites in geosynchronous orbit that Felix mentioned, they hang over one place on Earth. Hypothetically, if you did it with lots and lots of low-flying ones, it would be cheaper because the satellites are cheaper. The connection would be faster. And because you could sell it for a lower price, you'd have more demand. And also, the they will say, the amount of demand for connectivity now versus the late 90s, wildly different. But cell phones killed all those companies in the 90s, and 5G is coming into play in the next few years. So, Is there any evidence that this would be better than 5G? I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we need, so, But we do need to talk about the space bees. Yes. So this is actually where it gets – because the one thing I should mention is like right now space is really important to us. Almost every single financial transaction is timed by GPS. All militaries and are – And GPS is a space network. Yes. These just, just to remind us all, it was a space network which was built by the U.S. government, and we all use it every day. Yeah, where would we be? Where would Uber be? I guess Uber. Uber used to be a fun example for this. Now it's a sad example for this. <laughs> but think of something you like that involves GPS in your phone, and thank space for that. Um, but like right now, it's getting so cheap to go into space uh, that you could launch something accidentally or without permission. And if, you know, your tiny satellite hit another satellite and they all blew up and it was like the movie Gravity, it could be very expensive and bad for people on Earth, even right now. Even with like a ghost George Clooney. I mean, what would be bad about it? I guess <laughs> George Clooney's passing would be sad. But otherwise, what could be bad about it? So, okay, but, but, okay, so tell us about the space bees. So the space bees are sort of what happens when Silicon Valley comes into space in a certain extent. And the space bees, could, could we call them like the Theranos of space? No, because, because they, they might work. They, they actually, they, like, no one has questioned the technology here. Uh, it's more like the Uber of space because it works, but it may just not be legal. Um, this is a startup company where they want to launch extremely tiny satellites that will control Internet of Things objects. So maybe like delivery drones for Amazon or self-driving cars or 
I don't know, oil rigs in the middle of the ocean. Um, they couldn't get permission from the FCC, which is in charge of uh, letting people fly satellites into space, and they launched them anyways. And from that, India. From India, um, because it's pretty cheap to launch tiny satellites in India. This is a very global industry. And, but does the FCC consider itself to have jurisdiction over Indian satellite launches? Well, this is what's very interesting about space law, which is does it? Um, <laughs> uh, what the FCC has jurisdiction over is um, transmissions from the ground in the U.S. to satellites flying above it. So if they use the satellites, the FCC definitely has jurisdiction over that. So they if could potentially the send them up without getting in trouble. But if they're having contact back with the ground, then they get in trouble. Yes. I mean, that's, uh, that's assuming, the clear cut Assuming case. that the place in the ground is in the continental is in the United States. Yes. But if they just like ran over to Tijuana, then they'd be fine. Well, presumably the Mexican telecom regulator would have some concerns about that. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. it isn't also part of the concern here is that they are so tiny that they also can't easily be detected? That is why the FCC said no. These next generation satellites are so small that the radars we use to track satellites and make sure they don't bang into each other may not reliably be able so to see So how small are these satellites? These are... Um, uh, picture a 10 centimeter cube and then picture a quarter of that cube and that's how small they are. So like a two and a half centimeter cube? It's still 10 centimeters on the... Oh, I see. It's 10 okay. by 10 by two and a half. Yes. Okay. It's like money does math. <laughs> please, please don't make me do math. I, I'm like the least technically minded space reporter there is. This is where the Theranos of space makes sense though because this could actually be dangerous. And this is also like the, the little blood pinprick of space. Like This is like this. this, this <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Um, and well, it's a female entrepreneur who's running it. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's Swarm Technologies. I don't even know if I've said the name yet. The, the woman is Sarah Spangelo, and she's very interesting. She's a PhD. She's a licensed pilot. She, uh, she is not returning your phone calls. Lab. She is not returning my phone calls. I wish she would. Um, but so the, the, the other weird twist about this is even though the government thinks it can't see them, there's another space startup that's building radar stations to track small satellites. And they uh, are like, we can see them fine. We can track them. It's OK. But it's not clear if that will matter ultimately. Interesting. So they could also be like, yeah, yes, we can see them. So now buy our equipment. <laughs> yes. I mean, and that, that is their ultimate pitch. <laughs> right, down the line. Like, yeah. You know, those two companies are going to merge at some point. Yes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if they survive. The teeny tiny space company. <laughs> Has there been much like M&A in the space business? Actually, yeah. So the leading company um, of like space startups is called Planet. Um, they <laughs> It's not a very exciting name. I got to tell you, the naming conventions in this, I guess they're as bad as any other industry. But yes, Planet uh, takes a picture of the whole Earth every single day, which is really cool. They operate the world's largest commercial satellite constellation. They sell all that data. And they have succeeded in part by buying a ton of other small satellites. Uh, companies. So there was this company called Skybox that Google bought for $500 million that later Google quietly sold to Planet. Uh, there was a company called RapidEye that is in Germany that they bought. Um, and there was uh, another company they bought. So they bought three companies, um, which was smart because what kills satellite companies is uh, when there's too many of them and there's they can't they, they oversupply the product. So consolidation makes sense right now. Amazing. So <laughs> that's one way to react. So to that yeah, hit, come to Slate Money for consolidation in the satellite yes. industry news. I feel like we don't cover that nearly enough. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, Tim, you're an expert on Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. You just wrote a book about all of that. <laughs> My other forthcoming book. Um, okay, let's start with the news. Because I am, I have to admit, for all that there's been huge amounts of chatter and talk and delete Facebook hashtags on Twitter, like, which one of you two is going to tell me what the news is here? To me, the most important news that came out in all of this was that Steve Bannon is the person who came up with the name Cambridge Analytica. And that is so perfect. It's like such a distillation of Steve Bannon. I, I agree with that. So Cambridge Analytica um, is the company which kind of sort of stole 30 million profiles which it had no right to 50 million yeah so basically this company that is like a voter profiling company essentially that was created by the mercer family and steve bannon used a academic and had him essentially pretend that he was just doing an academic study and have this quiz that was on Facebook that people could take, download. But by taking this quiz, not only was their data able to be transferred, but all of their friends' data was. And that's why even though not a huge number of people took the quiz, a lot of people's data okay. was so, transferred. So I think there are two things which are getting conflated here and are important to separate. The first thing was what Cambridge Analytica did, which was that it basically it gave 275,000 people a personality quiz and said we will actually pay you money. They paid them cash to take this quiz. They took the quiz. They handed over all of their personal Facebook data. And then using that set of like training data, basically, they said, well, people who have this kind of constellation of Facebook likes and, you know, have this kind of personality and people who have that kind of constellation of Facebook likes have that kind of personality. So they could work out, basically, they came up with this secret... Um, like decodering, which would turn your Facebook likes into a personality profile. And then what they did was they took 50 million people who were like the friends of these 275,000 people, looked at their Facebook likes, and then created a personality profile for each of those 50 million people. And this was the brainchild of, I guess, Steve Bannon and various people like that, 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 that if you could then you would then target ads at people according to their personality pro- profile and they would be more susceptible that way. Yeah, and kind of taking advantage of people's psychological weaknesses. And so that's the first thing that people are getting upset about is that Steve Bannon was taking advantage of people's per- per, you know, personality weaknesses without their advantage. And then the second thing, which is a very separate thing, was that they had no right to access these 50 million profiles in the first place and the fact that they well could do did they not have any no right? yeah because i they, believe that was a service offered by facebook facebook had changed their terms of service so they could initially access only for academic purposes the original data set but they could not access the friends that was something you used to be able to do and then facebook changed that. and then and then in any case cambridge analytica couldn't access it because it had no right to use the academics st- um, data set that had been produced by this Russian researcher at Cambridge. Dr. Spector. Dr. Spector, as he's known. Um, so that feels like a Facebook fuck up. 
because like Facebook should not make it easy to allow you know for for data for that kind of level of granular and massively huge data to make it out into the wild like that. Right. They can't just say, well, we're changing our terms of service, but you can still do it. And then we'll just tell you to delete it and we'll assume you did. Well, you know, why people are outraged about this, I think, is not really any of the Cambridge Analytica or Trump stuff. I think it's just people are realizing that this is Facebook's normal business model. They didn't even pay for these for this data. It was sort of given away as a loss leader. Yeah, I agree. I think this is less about, you know, what Cambridge Analytica did or did not do, what effect it potentially had in the elections, and more about this year of people getting angrier and angrier at tech companies. So here's my question. We have seen a significant decline in the price of Facebook stock over the past week. It has gone down by 10%-ish, $50 billion-ish. Anna, why is that? Is that just because people don't want to hold a stock which people are angry about? Or is it because they reckon that like this is actually going to affect Facebook's cash flows? Yeah, I think the fear is that this could lead to additional regulations, which could then almost certainly affect Facebook's business model, which would certainly affect their future cash flows. And I think this is something that not just Facebook, but a lot of tech companies, there's concern right now that because we're seeing more of this public and government kind of backlash about how tech companies are operated. So I think with Facebook right now, it's not just this specific scandal. It's that what this scandal could lead to in a broader context. Also, I think it's important to note that Facebook's had some not fantastic numbers coming out even before that, where they've been like losing younger users. So this really didn't come at a good time. I think that's one interesting aspect of this, because it does seem like the world is primed for Facebook regulation. Uh, You know, I think if the Democrats win Congress next year, regardless of what they will do about Donald Trump, I think there will be a big push to investigate and and change the way that, that, you know, we let these companies do things with our data. But that regulation often comes too late. And I wonder, you know, is Facebook already a diminishing property? Are like the next generation of teens, you know, either savvier about social media to to use not use Facebook? Or is there another thing? Well, the good thing for Facebook is that a lot of them are just going to Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) But that's partially an active choice about how much data they want to reveal about themselves. But Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of it on their cell phone. There's a huge (laughs) difference between using Facebook and having a Facebook account. And I think this is what people... I think this is where Facebook is actually relatively safe, is that even if people start using Facebook much less, and even if teens barely use Facebook, they barely use it. They don't use it zero, and they have an account. And so long as you're logged into Facebook somewhere and you're surfing the web and you're like, there are little Facebook pixels like following you around everywhere. The fact is that the data that Facebook has about you and the ability that advertisers have to reach you and to target ads at you, because it's not just ads on Facebook. We have to remember this. Um, it, you could be reading Slate and um, you will get an ad targeted at you because you're logged in you're reading Slate while logged into Facebook and then Slate knows who you are, who your Facebook profile is, and then advertisers will buy you individually through like dynamic ad targeting and serve you an ad just because of 
your Facebook profile and that kind of thing. You don't even you don't need to be on the app. I think a lot of people don't realize this. That kind of ad targeting is going to continue you know, even for teens and people who don't use Facebook very much. Yes, but if your user engagement is lower, that is going to advertisers are going to know that, and that is going to affect rates. Now, I, I agree no, with no, you. no. I mean, what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter how much you use Facebook, so long as you're logged into the system. Like, if you you can be visiting Slate, you can never be visiting Facebook at all. And advertisers, well, I think, there's a reason you. that investors care about like monthly average users yeah. as a major metric for these companies. Like, they're 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 using the data, but like I said, it's a loss leader. They're selling the eyeballs. They're selling the specific right. eyeballs, but right. you need those. I think it's also important to note regulations that are coming in other countries because the EU right now, one of their kind of large data regulations that is coming through actually could stop Facebook from using data they've already collected because it, it gives people a lot more say over how their data is used. Right. So I think if that kind of thing starts happening, not just in the U- EU, but in the US, that then changes Facebook's business model. And and this is the thing which I want which I want to see Facebook do, which is like pie in the sky and will never happen. But ultimately, I just want to get rid of all targeted advertising altogether. And I just hate tar- And I feel like it's deeply undemocratic, especially when it's political advertising, but it's d- damaging in a whole bunch of ways, even outside the political realm. And what happened was that we wound up with this tool, which no one really thought about, and it turned out to be incredibly dangerous. And we should basically just mothball the entire thing. Well, Two things, you know, one is, and kind of at the heart of the Cambridge Analytica scandal too, and Facebook and Google's business model is, does targeted advertising or even advertising work And this is where all? this is where the ghost of Kathy O'Neill comes in and says, well, actually, there's no evidence to believe that it does. And this was one thing I thought right. interesting about Cambridge Analytica too, was that this video comes out that, you know, looks horrible because the, you know, the head of the company is making these wild claims about how they were using like... Ukrainian prostitutes with politicians. <laughs> I mean, things that, you know, probably don't want to be saying. But it also seemed like he's probably making claims that are larger than what they actually did, which doesn't mean it's still not bad what they did. But this I, I wonder this with a lot of our concerns about targeted political campaigns, about how useful they actually are. I, like, I believe that they like, are. I believe the targeted campaigns, and I, I believe we, we learned in Obama 2008, that like... If you get people to buy into targeted campaigns, they can be effective. So, you know, if you know that there's someone in a swing state who you want to get out and vote, the best way you can get them to get out and vote is to find out who their friends are on Facebook and get their friends to ask them to get out and vote. No, it, it's true. And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that this has no effect. I, I just think right now it seems to me like maybe it's being a little overstated. I, I think this also in line with like the Russia scandal, this idea that this was what tipped the election to Donald Trump. Well, I think it was, that it was so narrow, just about anything could have. Of course, but yeah, yeah. But just in general, I think we sometimes think that, and I think Kathy would probably say this, is that we think these algorithms are smarter and more powerful than they may actually be. Right. So this is actually interesting because the the real sort of interesting subplot, well, a and a subplot. <laughs> there are many subplots. Yeah. Is like, is this going to be like the Al Capone tax fraud thing that gets? Cambridge Analytica or the Trump campaign in trouble because like ultimately, you know, it does help answer a question of, uh, you know, throughout the campaign, we were all wondering Donald Trump was not spending a lot of money on uh, advertising and digital stuff except towards the end of the campaign. And it was and especially he was not buying voter information. 
And it was always like, where is he getting his voter information? And so the efficacy of a lot of political advertising, even targeted stuff, is often measured when political scientists research it as just canceling out the other sides. So it is really interesting to think about how much that information played in canceling out what Hillary Clinton's insanely, you know, enabled tech team was trying to do at that moment. Uh, but like, what's interesting about it is, is it a violation of federal election law? Um, because of a foreign nationals and B data that was not appropriately obtained? Yeah. And, and that the, that little like campaign finance subplot is going to be very fascinating. Well, I don't know. Do you have I, one other thing I just want to mention on the international front, because we often forget about it when taking talking about Facebook, is that in a lot of countries around the world, Facebook is the internet. I mean, the Philippines is a great example. And, you know, there are various nations in Africa, um, you know, in Brazil, uh, you know, and it's like if Facebook goes away or if its model changes entirely, what happens to those communities of people? I I should also plug right here the Slate Plus segment for you Slate Plus listeners. We have a very long and very detailed segment about binary options, which I can tell you (laughs) is going to nerd out like it's so awesome. You have to you have to listen to it. It's with this guy called Mario Christodoulou from Australia, who knows more about binary options than like anyone else. And the Philippines does have a walk on roll. So there you go. So That's, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned if you're a Slate Plus listener. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Wealthfront, because I feel like there's actually a segue here when it comes to people handing over whether it's money personal data people like get excited about shiny new objects and apps and they go oh my god this is awesome and they hand over their personal data or they hand over their retirement funds or whatever and then they wake up one morning and they're like wait what are you doing with this and this is um this is what happened with wealthfront last month which is one of the two big robo-advisors, which isn't part of an existing large brokerage. So, like, Vanguard has them, Charles Schwab has them. But the two big independent ones are Wealthfront and Besmond. And what Wealthfront did was it it basically quietly changed its entire investing mechanism on everyone with a taxable account over $100,000. And they were like, okay, from now on in, unless you will opt out, we are going to put 20% of your money into our own expensive Wealthfront mutual fund, something, something, risk parity, something, something, you know. Total return swaps. Total return swaps. And, and, and then, like, you know, finance Twitter kind of exploded on this one and said, like, what on earth are you doing? This makes no sense. Everyone started phoning them up and saying, what are you doing? This makes no sense. They haven't returned anybody's phone calls. Oh, it's a good sign. <laughs> I actually I hadn't realized that it was people over a hundred thousand dollars invested in the company or in an account, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. 
how many people do you think that is at Wealthfront? Seems if like that would be like small. Yeah, the millennials robo advisor. That's a very good question, and yet that and that also yes, that's another un- question and, and not answering. But if you're Wealth a millennial Fund with a hundred thousand dollars invested, maybe that's optimal risk allocation. <laughs> um, Wealthfront has historically been the place for the bigger accounts. Betterment has historically been the place for the smaller accounts. Betterment is based in New York and has like people living in Brooklyn. Betterment, uh, well, Wealthfront is based in Silicon Valley and has a whole bunch of people who cashed out of Google and, you know, wound up making money that way. And they've always been sort of more tech based. And so who knows? I think they do have quite a lot of people with accounts over $100,000. One of the interesting parts about this story is that their mutual fund, this risk parity thing, which they which they've implemented, is only being offered to in in the taxable accounts, despite the fact that it involves a huge amount of taxable trading. It's a it's basically a short term trading strategy, which you would think intuitively would make more sense in a tax free account. But the Department of Labor has these fiduciary obligations on anyone. Um, running tax-free accounts and basically it looks like they're not allowed like it's it's kind of basically oh you think illegal. it's an end run around the fiduciary rule yeah <laughs> yeah i mean this Boy. i very much agree with you that the idea of changing how you're investing other people's money and not letting them know and you know and making it an opt out as opposed to an opt in is a very bad idea especially when you are targeting investors who by going to you are essentially saying, I don't really want to, like, I don't want to be too involved in this. Right. You know, you're, I, you're forcing people to make an active decision about how their money is managed when your entire unique selling point from day one has been, you do not need to make active decisions about how your money is managed. Right. And I'm not opposed to well-run risk parity funds, but the ones that are well-run are run by very smart, knowledgeable people. I don't know who's working at Wealthfront, and I, I'm not saying they're not smart and knowledgeable, but these are incredibly difficult to run. And and the one and and they don't run automatically by algorithm, no. which is the way that Wealthfront wants. They're like, we've created an algorithm which can outperform Bridgewater by 300 <laughs> basis points. And yeah, and, like, mm. yeah. When you start to hear the whole like, yeah, yeah, like it's like hedge fund strategies for you know ETF prices. Not that anyone would really want most hedge fund strategies right now, but but still, you you have to be concerned. And I, and I think this is something with a lot of passive products. Like there is a huge range of passive products, and I think sometimes people think they're all the same. And I also sometimes think people think they're all low risk. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. It, in fact, is not the case. And I mean, there is a case to be made that the risk parity fund might be lower risk than the you know pure equity investing that you you would get if you just bought ETFs. Yeah, but the case is the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, it's it's a, it's not an easy case to make. And a lot of people who just want to do passive investing, they don't want it because it's low risk. They want it because they just don't want to be paying enormous fees and and financial technology that they don't particularly want or understand. And the minute you start getting into these total return swaps, which are expensive, by the way, I mean, they could, you know, Wealthfront is charging 50 basis points just to run the fund, but then over and above that is the cost of the swaps, which could easily be 25 3%, no one really knows. Um, you're like, 
do I understand why I'm doing this? Do I understand how this works? And Wealth Fund is like, here's a white paper, which you won't understand. <laughs> and, and so you're like, no, okay, just put me into the stock market broadly at a cheap rate. This is the passive investing gospel. And over the long term, I'll probably outperform people who are doing clever, active management kind of things. That's what Wealthfront was selling for years until suddenly one morning it woke up and changed its mind. Yeah, and it seems that part of the reason it changed its mind is because not that many people have actually been investing with them. The Yeah, well, their growth rate has gone linear, let's just say. They're, 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 still, they're still growing. That's never good in finance. They're still growing, and it's fine in finance once you, once you have, you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars under management if it still grows. Well, well actually, well, interestingly, I mean, it depends on what you're talking about here. If you're talking about assets under management, sometimes actually having fewer can be better. But if you're actively managing or even doing like smart beta funds, sometimes actually having less AUM can be better. But if, but if it, you're it, doing pure passive, it's it's by, by scale. Right. And and wealth funds and betterment and the robos in general are passive investors where you make money from scale. And the question, the big question has always been, how long will it take these companies to get to the kind of scale they need to start making real money? And when there was a hope that they could grow exponentially, any kind of exponential growth gets you to any kind of scale you want pretty quickly. <laughs> when you work that into your model, all yeah. the numbers work out. And then they stopped growing it exponentially and they started growing linearly. And now everyone's like, oh, that's a problem. And so now they need more revenues more quickly because they can't get them from exponential growth. And so they're saying, hey, this is, I mean, this is basically a way for Wealthfront to increase the fees it's getting from those taxable customers by 40% overnight on an opt-out basis. And that seemed, you know, because they used to just charge 25 basis points. I mean, the fees are still relatively low, right? So they used to charge 25 basis points, um, flat fee. Now they're saying we're going to continue to charge you your 25 basis points flat fee. We're also going to put 20% of your money into our proprietary fund, which charges a 50 basis point fee. So basically, that's another 10 basis points, which comes to us. Well, I think you made a good point in your story about this, Felix, is that they are caught between sort of a rock and a hard place where, you know, the people who you know, have decided they want like a passive investing strategy are probably just going to buy ETFs themselves and not pay for an algorithm to do it. And, you know, if that is the case, then these companies are never going to be able to recoup, you know, the expectations of their, remember, these are venture backed companies. So the expectations for their returns have got to be huge. And so the fact that they're shifting into this dubious model, or at least shifting into a model that they're doing very dubiously, it doesn't it doesn't look very good as uh, as it relates to like how finance operates via via its customers. Yeah, I, I think I've always kind of wondered why you would use some of these robo advisors when you could just three or four one k go into index funds or, or different ETFs if and, that's and, what you want to do. And, that, and that's a really good question. And there is an answer. And basically, this is part of a bigger question, which is, is passive investing for relatively sophisticated people like, say, me, and I'm a great believer in passive investing, and I know what I'm talking about most of the time. And I, if I wanted to, I could probably go into a brokerage account and put together a passive portfolio Um and you're right, Tim, that people like that, most of the time, that's exactly what they do do. They'll open up an account with Charles Schwab or 
some other cheap account online. They'll buy a bunch of S&P 500 index funds, and then they'll go to bed and they'll wake up 30 years later and it'll be worth what it's worth. And they'll be like, okay, that was easy. Um, <laughs> Ideally. And, yeah. then, and then there's the less sophisticated people who are like, I don't know anything about finance. I don't know. I don't want to know anything about finance. I don't want to be in charge of this myself because it's not something which I feel expert enough to be able to do. I want to give it to experts who do know what they're doing who are very clever and they work at places like Wealth Fund and Betterment. And I want, and everyone assures me that passive investment is very smart and simple and easy to understand. So I'll just give my money to them and they're going to do it for me. And those people, I think, are a huge and important part of the market and they should be served. And that's yeah, the answer to your question. But couldn't they just go through their bank? Well, by the way, that just the reality of that impulse, that thought that you just mm-hmm. described, is why there should be a fiduciary rule for brokers. Agreed. Yeah. Like that is 100% of why that rule exists. And this, you yeah. know, example with Wealthfront is like, that is why this rule should be in place. And yeah. And I th- and yes. So long as that, if, and the answer, and that's the answer to your question, Anna, which is like, can they do that through the bank? Maybe, but only if their bank is a fiduciary. And right now, well, the bank is not. They could still tell their bankers that that's. I mean, they could. They could. I mean, it depends, I guess, on how much money you have. But you could usually go through the kind of wealth management part of the bank and just say, "This is what I want to do." They, the they no, may try to sell you other things. No, but that's the whole point. We. That's the whole point. If you know what you want to do, you're no. I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. If you I, know what you want to do, you're no, me. Yeah. You're, you've got your Charles Schwab account. Then it's easy. The question is, what happens to the people who don't know what they want to do and just want to just be able to? Although not I will just say, it. a lot of what these robo advisors do are essentially like um, like age based funds. The idea that like this is a fund that I would think I would take out in a certain year and then it changes the allocation between it, that, it's, that is it's what a lot of those target date ish yes but it, it's it's more related to risk profile than it is to age right but still what they're doing is very similar to what most target dated funds so Absolutely. if you just you're you know set up your you're setting up your 401k at your company and you just say okay I'm going to go with these target date funds. It's going to be very similar, similar yeah. and and this is what I and and I think this is a good place to end it which is that the gold standard is and always has been just buy a Vanguard target date fund and end the story. Yeah, if you're do a small it, time investor, do it in your do it do in your four hundred one k. Disclosure here. Do it. Do yeah, it. I mean, I, I will Felix say, Felix is not yeah, a registered yeah, investor. No, 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 okay. So, so here's 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 the thing. Right, if that's the goal, can you do better than the gold standard? You know, arguably yes. You know, will people all do that? Arguably, certainly not. Like, you know, are there reasons not to do that? Absolutely. Um, are there really fun, like, cool, clever behavioral things, reasons why, like, someone like Betterment might be better than that? We can totally go into that. But, you know, a little bit like in philanthropy, the 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 base level which you judge everything against is just like, well, wouldn't it be easier to just give people money? Um, <laughs> in, in investment, the base level you you know, it's always like, well, is this better than just putting all of your money into a Vanguard target date fund? Yeah. So even though we can, on another date, get into the larger conversation about some of my concerns with what's happening with so much um, passive activity, I agree with you, of course. For the vast majority of investors, simply investing passively and waiting is going to be the best thing. I want to um, come back for that episode. Yeah, come back for that. And let's move on to a numbers round. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Uh, Tim, did you bring a number? Uh, my number is uh, approximately $60 billion, which is uh, 10% of the losses the administration wants to recoup from uh, intellectual property theft in China. Oh, good. I'm glad we get a Chinese trade war in here somewhere. I figured we had to. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's literally roiling the markets as we speak, or at least it was yesterday. I haven't checked this morning. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Trump administration started a trade war this week. A uh, trade skirmish, maybe. Let's, let's not get into hyperbole. <laughs> But they've uh, unilaterally imposed uh, a lot of tariffs on Chinese imports. Why did they do that? (laughs) <laughs> so, there are, so, there like, are levels yeah. to this question. Yeah. There's like an expanding brain meme. Right. Well, yeah, I was just saying, because yes, I mean, I think and most, a lot of, frankly, both Democrats and Republicans would agree in there are a lot of legitimate concerns and issues with Chinese trade policy and Chinese economic policy. But most people would say that the way to deal with that is to work with our allies and to figure out ways to kind of combat the threat with others, not to do these unilateral tariffs, which are just a horrible idea. And you can see it in the markets because especially, you know, half of the revenue for the S&P 500 is from foreign sources. Uh, Exports drive the U.S. economy and these companies are cratering because they're expecting, one, China to retaliate against their supply chains and two, maybe other countries as well. Also, also China is the linchpin of the global economy. So I think this is something that not surprisingly is like not thought through in Donald Trump's policy, this idea that even if he achieved what he seems to want to achieve, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> but it's all OK because John Bolton is going to look after national He security. and his mustache are going to keep us safe. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so on sticking to the international theme, I'm, I'm going to move over to Japan. My number is... 2,202, which is the number of disaster-related deaths which the Japanese government's reconstruction agency attributed to Fukushima in Japan, not from the earthquake itself, but from the evacuation. They evacuated the area and because of the various stresses associated with the evacuation, um, there was interruption to medical care, there were suicides, there was a whole bunch of deaths which could be attributed to, and 2,202 is how many people died because they evacuated the area. The number of people who died from radiation poisoning or any kind of exposure to radiation from Fukushima is zero. And there's a very, very, very strong case to be made that basically the Japanese government killed 2,000 people by forcing the area to evacuate. And they should have just done nothing and those 2,000 people would be alive today. I guess wouldn't – I mean, I don't – I mean, it's, it's interesting to say because the idea is maybe if more of those people were there, then – I don't – yeah. But if you're saying that no one essentially has 
died from the radiation, then yeah, I mean, that's a... Or even really got sick. Like, there was a huge amount of fear and panic, and fear and panic is a dangerous thing, especially when it's associated with long-term evacuations. It wasn't like, move out of here for a week, and then you can move back and return to your lives. It's like, move out of here for months, and wind up in a city which you don't know, and wind up getting unemployed because you can't find a job, and, you know. I guess... I would just want, I mean, it's it's a quite a statistic. I, I just wonder, one, like how much of that has to do with the fact that it was also like a national disaster from the earthquake and tsunami going on at the same time, you mm-hmm. know? If that could have led to additional deaths as people were leaving. Yeah, or yeah. Just, the, the, the wider death toll was 15,895. Those are the people who I guess died is, the is the lesson that you're trying to suggest, like, don't evacuate the area the next time there's a nuclear meltdown? Yes. Because I think the fear it strikes of that, me as it may be a facile conclusion. <laughs> yeah, because it just seems like that, that may have worked that one time, but that other time, then if it doesn't, you know, that I don't know. That's that's a tough bet. I think evacuations are tough things. It's, it's hard for them to be done right, especially after the fact. But um, Anna, do you have a number? I do, and it's also international. Um, so mine is 7.1 billion. That is, uh, or that was, Turkey's current account deficit in January. It occurred to me this may be the second time I've used Turkey's current account <laughs> deficit um, as my number. But the reason I'm saying this is because that is part of the reason that uh, Moody's downgraded Turkey's sovereign debt and some of their banks further into junk. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because some government-related newspapers in, in Turkey started issuing these these headlines that were just amazing. They were like, Moody's love for Fatula Gulen. And they were trying to make the argument that Moody's, this report was like written with Fatula Gulen and that this downgrade was a Gulenist conspiracy. And I've heard a lot of things, but Moody's being a Gulenist conspiracy is a new one. I mean, we they did create the financial crisis, so I wouldn't put it past them. You know, ever since it came out that Mike Flynn was working to, like, kidnap Gulen on behalf of the Turkish government, there is no story that I will not believe. (laughs) Is there any connection that we know of between Mike Flynn and Moody's? I mean, he takes money from a whole bunch of... It's true. It's true. Not that I've heard. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I think that's it for us this week. Tim Fernholtz, many, many thanks for coming on Slate Money. It was awesome to have you here. It has been a privilege and a pleasure. Um... Virulin Williams, thank you for producing this week, stepping in for the normal Dan Schrader and doing a much better job, if I do say so myself. <laughs> um, do all you folks um, listening also listen to Hang Up and Listen, which is a weekly podcast coming out on Monday afternoons where Josh Levin and Stefan Patsis look at sports and society and the intersection. And basically, yeah, if you know anything about sports or care anything about sports, that's the podcast you listen to. Um, and do keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Stay tuned for nerding out on binary options if you're a Slate Plus subscriber. And otherwise, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.